Please be seated. Well, what a great morning this is, and how good to see all of you here as we come to worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's join together in prayer. Father, as we come into your presence today, our hearts are filled with praise. There's a sense of anticipation and excitement that we come on this day because of what took place in history, that Jesus died and rose again. And Jesus, how can we thank you for all that you have done for us, for your willingness to take upon yourself our sins and die in our place to pay a penalty that we deserve? But the grave could not hold you. Death could not keep you. Satan could not defeat you. But you rose again in triumph over all of your enemies. And you are now seated at the right hand of your Father in heaven. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for what you have done for each one of us and for the love that you have shown to us. Father, I pray that as followers of Jesus Christ, we would grow in our commitment to you. We'd become more and more like him in our character, our conduct, our attitudes. And today, I love that line in the song, let our, let our song and our voice join in the song that never ends. From that very first day when you rose again, people have been worshiping you as soon as they understood what this meant and what took place. And today we join with believers literally around the world who are gathering on this day to worship our risen Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for each one who's here. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would minister to all of us, whatever may be going on in our life at this time, that we would look to you for the guidance and the wisdom that you alone can give. And Father, thank you for the way that you are continuing to be at work in our church and through the ministries of our church. Thank you for Awana and for these children that recently came to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. What a great joy that is. And I pray that they would continue to grow in their relationship with you. Use us to be a witness for Christ, to be a light in this world. And Father, as we bring to you our gifts and our offering this morning, we thank you for the privilege we have to partner with you in your work. And we ask for your blessing upon this offering now. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20? We're going to be looking at John's gospel and the account of the resurrection this morning. I'd like to read part of this chapter as we begin. John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he asked, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. And tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these accounts in Scripture that tell of your Son's death and resurrection, so that we might know the truth of what happened in those days so that we might understand the meaning of it all by the witness of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that today as we go through this text that you would speak to our hearts. Encourage those of us who know you, and if any are here today who do not yet know you, that they would be drawn to Christ through what is said. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What a great day this is. I love Easter Sunday because of what it stands for. I love the excitement that you bring to a service like this. There's always a sense of anticipation when you come to an Easter service. There's a joy in the songs that we sing, but there's that deeper understanding of what this day is all about. This is a day of joy and victory when we celebrate our risen Lord and Savior. And every Sunday that follows during the year is really meant to be a mini-Resurrection Sunday, another, another day when we come again on the Lord's Day to remember what he has done for each one of us. I love what one of my professors in seminary said, S. Lewis Johnson. He said that the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. And you think about that, when Jesus died on the cross and he spoke those seven last words and one of them was, it is finished. The debt's been paid. All has been accomplished. The resurrection was really God's amen, his vindication of his son, Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, when he said of Jesus that he was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of our faith. It's the proof of his claim to be the Son of God, our Savior. And for John, it's the climax of his gospel. It is a day like no other in history. And because he lives, today we can celebrate. And because Jesus lives, Three things are true for all of us who have placed our faith in him. Number one, we have a solid faith that is rooted in history. And that is significant. These events were recorded so that we might know and understand exactly what took place 
on that first Easter morning. And Christianity is unique in that it invites us to examine the evidence. I mean, no other faith except Judaism invites you to do that. If you were to take the Book of Mormon, for example, and study it and try to compare it with history and archaeology on this continent, you would find that there's nothing that matches or lines up. It's not like the Old Testament and New Testament that speak of places like Jerusalem that you can still go to today, or the Sea of Galilee, or the villages in which Jesus spoke and taught that surround that part of the world. They're still there, and there is evidence of his existence. If you studied the history of Jehovah Witnesses, for example, and their founder, Charles Tazzy Russell, there are so many errors and false predictions that were made that they really don't want you to know their history. And if you took the Quran and you read it, you would begin to understand that there is no textual criticism allowed. You can't question it. You can't question or wonder if there are errors or mistakes in it. In certain parts of the world, you would be killed for doing that. But Christianity is different. It invites you and I to come and see and examine the evidence and make our decision. That's why the Gospels were written. Look at verse 1 here. John tells us that very early on the first day of the week, on that Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And from the other Gospels, we learn that there were other women with her. She wasn't alone in that. And we see that comment reflected a little later when she comes back to the disciples and she says, we don't know where they have put him. The women came to the tomb that morning to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Remember, Jesus' death took place on Friday it was just prior to the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies to remain on the cross. And so they asked that they be taken down. And because of that, and because the time was short, Jesus could not be given a proper burial. So these women came bringing spices, wanting to anoint the body of Jesus. And it's clear from the text that they were not expecting a resurrection. They didn't know how they were going to get into the tomb. They didn't know who would move the stone. Maybe there'd be somebody there to help them. They just knew that they loved Jesus and they wanted to come and show their respect for him. And when they arrived, they were shocked by what they saw. The stone was rolled away and the body was gone. So they ran and they told Peter and the other disciple, who was John, what they had seen. They didn't know if the Roman guards had taken him. They didn't know if the Jewish leaders had taken him or robbers or something. What had happened here? So Peter and John are also confused, and they run to the tomb to see what's going on here. John looks in, but he doesn't enter. And Peter charged right on in, and he saw the strips of linen, and he saw the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, and it was laying there. And Peter was puzzled. Why were the grave clothes still here? I mean, if, if robbers had taken it, they wouldn't have been so careful in wrapping the garments and putting them back on the stone. They would have taken the whole body. But why would they do that? And why would the Jewish leaders have taken it? If they had taken it, they certainly wouldn't have separated those things as well. The word that's used here to describe the way the grave clothes were left 
In Greek, it's the word kaimena. And what it means is this. It's used for things that have carefully been placed in order. It's like what you would do if you were arranging the papers on your desk where you had important papers and you had them piled up neatly because you wanted to be able to find what was there. Or it might refer to the way that you arrange your books on a bookshelf where it's all neat and it's orderly and you can come to them. Or the way that you put clothes in a drawer so that you can find what's there. The garments, the burial cloths had been laid neatly and in order. It was as though the body had simply vanished, leaving the grave clothes behind. And John, the other disciple, entered the tomb, and it says he saw and believed. He saw and believed. What's interesting in this text is that there are three words used for sight, and I believe that John was very careful in the way that he was using these words. The first word is blepo in Greek. It's used in verse 1 for what Mary saw when she came to the tomb and she saw the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. It's the word that's used for ordinary sight, the way that we might see something. You know, when you came to church this morning and you noticed something in the entry or you came in and you saw the beautiful flowers here today and you made an observation. That's the word blepo. The second word that's used for sight, though, is the word theoreo. It's used in verse 6 of Peter, and it means to see and think. When Peter went into the tomb and he saw the grave clothes there, he's wondering about this. I mean, he saw, and, and you can guess from the word theoreo that this is where we get our English word theory, that there's something going on in his mind, and he's trying to think about what happened here. And the third word that's used here is the word araho in verse 8. And it's used of John. When he saw and believed, it means to see with understanding. To see and understand and comprehend what you are seeing. Now John didn't understand everything. The disciples didn't yet. But the light was beginning to dawn. And you can imagine John thinking in his mind as he sees this empty tomb, he's wondering, Peter, could it be true? Could it be that Jesus is alive? Peter, do you remember what, what Jesus said to us when we were in that upper room with him on that night before the cross? He said, I will see you again, and your grief will turn to joy. Wow. You know, that progressive understanding is how it is for all of us when we come to faith. When you accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I don't know what age you were. I was 10. I certainly didn't understand everything about the gospel and about Jesus and what it would mean to follow him, but I knew enough to place my trust in him. I knew that Jesus loved me, that he had died for my sins, and I wanted to have a relationship with him. And I asked him to forgive my sins and come into my heart, just like these children did this week. And that decision was real, it was genuine, and there was a change that took place in my life. But as we walk with Jesus, we begin to understand more and more of his will for our life. And that's just the way it is in the Christian life. I think of how a few weeks ago when we had Josh McDowell here at our church and he spoke. 
And he shared his own testimony of coming to faith and how he was an agnostic and he was pretty belligerent in that, kind of arrogant. You know, he said about Christians, he thought that they had two minds, that one was lost and the other one was out looking for it. You know, and he was, uh, that's the way he felt. He thought that Christians believed a lie. But it was those very same Christians who challenged him to examine the evidence before he made his decision. And they threw it out there as a challenge, and he took it up. In the book that he wrote, Undaunted, which is about his story, he tells a little more detail about that. And one of the turning points for him was a meeting that he had with a man named Mr. Cobb. His quest to disprove Christianity took him to Scotland. And there he met this man who was a barrister, that's a lawyer, uh, who had studied the claims for Christ and who a person suggested that Josh should talk to. So here they are, they're having lunch, and Josh over lunch says to Mr. Cobb, he says, I'm looking for conclusive evidence, scientific proof that Christianity is essentially a mythology. Well, I don't know that I can help you, he said. Oh, I suddenly felt deflated. Mr. Cobb said, I'm not a scientist, you see. Oh, well, I I already knew that. You're a barrister, I said, showing off my newly learned word. Perhaps I used the wrong phrase when I said scientific proof. Oh, I don't think you did. I think you want ironclad evidence allowing you to prove the truth of your case beyond contradiction. But scientific proof is of little or no use when seeking to corroborate historical events. Something told me to keep quiet and listen to Mr. Cobb. You're to be commended for searching, young man, how I wish more of your generation would seek until they find. But you see, scientific proof is based on showing that something is a fact by repeating the event in the presence of the person questioning it And it is done in a controlled environment where observations can be made, data drawn, hypotheses tested and empirically verified, and the same results can be verified over and over again. Now, do you see the dilemma that puts you in if you're seeking to prove or disprove an historical event? You catch what he's getting there? He's saying, you know, scientific evidence is something you can do in a lab and you can have experiments and tests and show it over and over again to prove that it's true, but you can't do that with a one-time historical event. So what kind of evidence are you looking for? Well, he went on to say what you're looking for is legal and historical proof, the kind of proof that could stand up in a court of law. Legal historical proof is based on showing that something is factual beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, it allows us to determine the truth of a matter based on the strength of the material evidence presented. Legal historical proof depends on three types of testimony, which are oral testimony, written testimony, and exhibits. Now, For those of you who were here when Josh was here, that may be helpful in understanding why Josh brought all those exhibits that he did. I mean, it's why he had this scroll that was written in the 1400s here, so that he could show us how carefully those, um, you know, scribes copied the manuscripts that were there before them. 
how every letter had to be clear and free from touching the other letter, how there could be no errors in the copy, how the experts knew how many words there were in the Torah. They knew how many letters. They knew the middle word, middle letter. They were so careful. If there was a mistake about the name of God and copying it, the whole manuscript was destroyed. If it was another error, it could be corrected, but carefully. And how precise they were because they believed that what they were copying was the very word of God. And one of the things that people don't understand is that older manuscripts, as they were worn and used, were destroyed often when they they were replaced by new manuscripts because you wanted to make sure it was accurate and clear and readable for everyone who came alongside. There was evidence. And that's what's so amazing when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and all of a sudden you had manuscripts a thousand years older than anything we had before. And now you could take, for example, the book of Isaiah and you could compare it and you could find out that what we had now was what was written then. And it's why we can come to the Scriptures with total confidence that what we have in our Bible is what was written. And then you look at the um, oral testimony. And, you know, if you're a lawyer, you're going, were there eyewitnesses? And were those eyewitnesses credible? And is there eyewitness testimony from those who were, say, followers of Jesus as well as those who were not? And what you find historically is that there's evidence from the disciples, but there is also testimony from Josephus, a a Jewish historian, or there's uh, Tacitus, a Roman historian, and others who bear witness to what took place in the life of Jesus. So you have oral testimony, you have written testimony, and you have exhibits And all of that adds up. In fact, no other book in ancient history is as well attested as the Bible. And no other event in ancient history is as well supported as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles wrote as eyewitnesses. John tells us in 1 John 1 that what we have heard, what we saw, What we beheld, what our hands handled concerning the word of truth, this is what we proclaim to you. And we tell you this so that you can have fellowship with us and our fellowships with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Luke, when he started his gospel, said that he had investigated everything carefully. He met with eyewitnesses. He wrote everything down in an orderly account so that you might know the truth of what was written. And many have gone through to have called Luke a historian of the very first rank. It is for these reasons that Josh would share this kind of evidence. And he quoted different people who have gone through it that are legal experts. For example, Professor Thomas Arnold said, The evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up on a most important cause. And I have done it myself many times over. And I know of no one fact in history, uh, in the history of mankind, which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. 
Wilbur Smith quoted Lord Lyndhurst, who was one of the greatest legal minds in British history. And he said, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. And again, former Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, said, the evidence points unmistakably to the fact that on the third day Jesus rose. In its favor as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. In other words, if people would take the time to look at the evidence and they would look at it objectively, openly, they would see that the evidence is there that Jesus died and rose again. That's powerful. And as Christians, you know, we have solid ground on which we stand. That these events that took place are rooted in history, and you can go back and you can look at the evidence for it. But not only do we have a solid faith, we have a saving faith, a faith that changes lives. We see that in verses 11 to 18 in the story of what happened to Mary. As the disciples went back to their homes, Mary stood at the tomb weeping. And she looked into the tomb and she saw two men, two angels that were there. And they said to her, why are you crying? She still didn't know what happened. She just wanted to see Jesus. And perhaps one of them maybe motioned for her to turn around you know, and she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And maybe her eyes are still clouded by the tears as she has been crying. She thought he was the gardener. And it wasn't until Jesus called her by name, Mary, that she recognized him. Now, I think that's one of the most touching moments in this whole story. The fact that Jesus would call her by her name. Mary Magdalene, this one who had come from such a depraved life, had come to know Jesus, whose life was totally turned around by him, who loved him so much. And I think of this poignant moment when he calls her by name. Put yourself in that situation. You know, I think of my dad has been, been gone for many years. He died when I was just 23. And yet, if I heard my dad call my name, I would know it today. Or I think about my mom. If my mom called my name, I would recognize that. Especially if she used my first name and my middle name, I would know it was my mom who was calling me. You know, and here it is, Jesus, who called her, and she turns to him, and she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. It means literally, my dear Lord. And she fell at his feet and held on to him. Mary, don't. I've not yet gone to my father, but there's something I want you to do. I want you to go to my brothers and tell them I'm alive. Go to my brothers. Do you hear that? I mean, you mean you want me to go to the ones who were afraid and deserted you just a couple nights ago? You want me to go to Peter, the one who had denied that he even knew you, and you are calling them Brothers, brothers. 
In the book of Hebrews, the scripture says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He knows our failures too. He knows the times when we have deserted him, the times that we have denied him or disobeyed him, and yet he calls us brothers and sisters. And he loves us and he has forgiven us our sins and he calls us into this relationship with him as part of his family. And he says, tell them that I am returning to my father and your father, that I am returning to my God and your God. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. There's a change in this relationship, all because of what Christ has done for us. And Mary went to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. I bet she couldn't wait to tell them. The evidence had led to faith. You know, one of the greatest proofs for the truth of Christ and the reality of his resurrection is the changed lives of Christians throughout history. It's true of all of the saints who have gone before us. It's true of all those believers who were willing to lay down their lives as martyrs so that you and I could have the gospel. It's true of family members, relatives who have gone before us in the Lord, Sunday school teachers, pastors who shared with us the good news of the gospel, and it is still going on today. Ravi Zacharias writes that during the course of nearly 40 years, I have traveled to virtually every continent and seen or heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. I have seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus Christ and their hearts turned toward good in a way that no amount of rehabilitation could have accomplished. I've seen ardent followers of radical belief systems turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild, tender-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. I've seen nations where the gospel is banned and silenced by governments, but has nevertheless conquered the ethos and mindset of an entire culture. I agree. In just the limited travel I have done, and a lot of that's been to Latin America, I've met with people that once were part of the shining uh, path uh, terrorists in Peru that have come to know Christ and are now evangelists for him. I've seen believers most recently at this conference from 14 different Latin American nations who could all personally tell you of an encounter that they have had with Jesus Christ, and they've come to know him as Savior and Lord, as you and I have. And when you come and you hear their stories and you share your testimony of faith, you realize we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that this family of God encompasses all who have come into a relationship with him around the world. Jesus is alive, and he is changing lives today. But not only do we have a solid faith and a saving faith, we have a triumphant faith. And we see that in the stories that are told at the end of this chapter. In verse 19, John tells us what happened when Jesus came to the disciples that night. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. He wanted them to see the wounds that he still bore. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw that it was the Lord, that he was alive. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
He wanted them to be absolutely convinced of the fact of the resurrection, that he was the one he claimed to be, the Messiah, our Savior and Lord. Well, Thomas was missing on that first night, and Thomas was that more skeptical one who was not going to be convinced, he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger into his side, I will not believe. And one week later, Jesus once again stood among them, and he came to Thomas, and he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand here in my side and see that it is me. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. These were the men who went out and turned the world upside down. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were so changed from these men who were fearful before the cross to bold witnesses who would lay down their life for Jesus after the cross. And their words in the gospel they preached shook the world. Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and Satan. And when we walk with him in the power of his Holy Spirit, his victory is our victory too. Ravi Zacharias went on to talk too about the change that Jesus has made in nations. One of the most amazing stories is what's taken place in China. In the middle of the 20th century, after destroying all of the Christian seminary libraries in the country, Chairman Mao declared that Christianity had been permanently removed from China, never to make a return again. All the libraries destroyed. So many Christian missionaries driven out of the country or killed in those years, never again going to come back. On Easter Sunday in 2009, the leading English newspaper in Hong Kong published a picture of Tiananmen Square on page one. And on that square, you know, there's this big, huge banner that was there of Chairman Mao above Tiananmen Square. Well, they replaced that picture of Mao with a picture of Jesus Christ. And under that picture were the words, Christ is risen. And today, do you know that there are more believers in China than there are members in the Communist Party? That's one of the things that just has them so worried. There are estimates of 170 million believers today in China as the church has grown. It's awesome. Ravi said, I've also been in the Middle East and marveled at the commitment of young people who have risked their lives to attend a Bible study. I've talked to CEOs of large companies in Islamic nations who testify to seeing Jesus in visions and dreams and wonder what it all means. And we, okay, you know, in our church, I've, I've talked to people who work in those different parts of the world, and they're talking about Syrian believers. They're talking about uh, Syrians, Iraqis, Iranians, who are all coming to know the Lord and being baptized and who are so fed up with the extremism that they are seeing in Islam today that they are searching. And God is making himself known, and they are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is running to the ends of the earth, and it is triumphant. The British author A.N. Wilson, who only a few years ago was known for his scathing attacks on Christianity celebrated Easter in a church with a group of other church members. 
And he proclaimed that the story of Jesus in the Gospels is the only story that makes sense out of life and its challenges. He said, my own return to faith has surprised none more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lies and examples of people I have known, not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. It was the testimony of people like you and me, ordinary people living out our lives with our faith in Jesus Christ that was the most powerful witness to him. So go in the power of the gospel and of the risen Christ and be a witness for Jesus in this world. We have a solid faith that's rooted in history. We have a saving faith that can save us from our sins. We have a triumphant faith that can overcome any obstacle, and it is all because of Jesus and his death and resurrection. But what about you? Do you know him as your Savior and Lord? If you're here today and you have never made that commitment to Christ, I invite you to do so today to turn to him, to ask him to forgive your sins, to come into your life and be your Savior and Lord. That's why this gospel was written. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life? Turn to him today in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the evidence that there is for faith. Thank you for the words of Scripture that bear witness to who Jesus is and what he did. And thank you for the promises that all who believe in you will live. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I pray that today you would open your heart to him and say, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me, a sinner? Would you cleanse my heart? Would you come into my life and help me to know you better and be my Savior and Lord? I ask this in your name. Jesus, thank you that you love us and that you will do that, that all who call upon you you will not reject, but you will welcome them into your arms. Amen. And they sang a new song, that you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.